welcome to session 12 of Something More. This is the final one in this whole complete series. And before I go any further, I just want to encourage you to do something. If you did a YouTube search for this particular subject, which could be heaven, hell, resurrection, whatever it might be, and you found this particular session, I want to urge you to stop right now and go to the Cross Currents channel or the channel that you are finding this on and look for session 11, which is titled The Lie That Just Won't Die. I would just tell you it is almost imperative that you watch that one first before you watch this. And by doing so, you will see the biblical truth that will unlink all the truths that you're going to see in this particular session. So again, go check out session 11, The Lie That Just Won't Die, and then come back to this particular one. But as we go on, if you've already watched 11, we're going to move on, and there's a lot to cover in this particular session. It is the final one, and it will be just slightly longer than most of the other ones, and hope you'll bear with me because I'm going to take you through a timeline and track. And when we get done, I believe you will say, as Pascal asked you to do your wager, yes, God is definitely worth putting everything in, giving my life, my belief, everything that the faith that I have, and you will find that it is more than you could ever have imagined. Yes, the Bible is an amazing narrative. It's all God's love, and that's what really what we're going to define today. And we're going to look, as we get started, in what Jesus had to say about the final events of this planet. Now, you'll notice that a, that a timeline's popping up right here, and we're going to start here on the left side of your screen, and as we go through this next few minutes together, it will spread across, and it will end on the right side of your screen, right over here. And this timeline will continue the biblical narrative of our present world and the world to come and all the events that will take place. These are biblical. And, and again, they will make much more sense if you have already watched Session 11. And if, and if you haven't and you didn't, you didn't think you should stop, please stop now, go back to 11, then come back to this one. It all makes sense when you do. But we're going to start first with the final warnings, as you see here on your timeline. And we're going to go to Matthew, and Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and we pick it up here. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Then he goes on. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. It's not like the world we live in today. How many wars do we have going on that are active and present? <laughs> yes. But Jesus said it would come. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Whoever thought that we would shut our economy down here in the United States and many other places around the world, yet it's happened. And Jesus said these things would take place, but the end is not yet. Hmm. Well, he goes on in that particular text as we follow it. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There's a lot to digest just in that one particular section. He's talking about the persecution of Christians, which is taking place rapidly around the world. Numerous countries, uh, there is no tolerance for Christians, and they are being 
just murdered, often without any knowledge to the rest of the world, but they're being wiped out. The other thing he talks about is the lawlessness and the hearts of many will grow cold. I mean, the crime, we, I think we've become immune. And this is what the world we live in. But Jesus goes on. I mean, this, these are the things that are expected, but he goes on and picks it up, Matthew 24 again. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You want to know the surest sign that Jesus is getting ready to come? The gospel everywhere. And there's never been a better time. We have internet. We have cell phone evangelism. We have every possible form of communication. Yes, there are some countries that are still untouched, but we are getting and making progress. The gospel is going out. What's the gospel? It's the good news of salvation that comes through Christ alone. But he says, when you see that gospel coming, then you'll know that the end is near. Now, Paul wrote to Timothy to express to him what the character of people would look like. We talked about some of the different things, and Jesus even references lawlessness and the hearts of many grow cold. But Paul wrote to Timothy, and, and this is what he said about the character of people right before Jesus comes. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That certainly describes much of our society today. In fact, I mean, I'm 50, and I think back, it wasn't like this when I was a kid. Maybe you do too. It, it, it's getting worse, and, and these are just signs, as Paul said, and as Jesus referred to, of the what life will be like, what the times will be like right before he comes. But there's, there's good news, and Jesus goes a little bit further. We go back to Matthew 24. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no end, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So this is the world we live in. I mean, it, it, it is a crazy place. The crime, pandemics, the economy, you name it, it's crazy. But then Jesus, I want to reflect on a promise that he gave to his disciples the last night he was with them, found in John 14. And I believe it's applicable for us as well. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. So in the midst of all these trials, tribulations, and the craziness in the world, Jesus is saying, don't lose hope. I'm coming back to get you. And these signs, they are signs of my soon return. And then, as everything seems to be falling apart, everything seems to be going crazy, and we've lost all hope, then it happens. The second coming of Jesus. And you'll see it on your timeline right here. It's going to be a magnificent event. And, and Jesus refers to it. And he talks about it a little bit further as we're going through Matthew 24. We pick it up. Immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We're going to go through all these things, all these trials at the end, all these tribulations, and then Jesus says, I'm coming. And the angels are coming with me and we are going to get everybody that has loved me, all the elect, all those who have accepted and believed in me, received eternal life, I'm coming for them. How will he come? Well, we get an understanding in the book of Acts, chapter 1, when Jesus is being raised up to heaven at the ascension, the disciples are looking, and they get a promise from the angels as they're watching. Acts 1. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's how Jesus is coming back. Just as he went, that's how he's coming back down. And it's going to be a loud, magnificent, beautiful event. We understand that as we read here in Revelation. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So at this magnificent event, Jesus is coming. The clouds have parted. The angels are present. The trumpets are blowing. What will happen? Well, Jesus referred to this in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here, here we get a reference that we're going to follow up later of this two different resurrections. The first one are for those who fell asleep in Jesus. The second one are for those who fell asleep, who had rejected him, who were separated from him. Two resurrections, we're going to focus on the first one. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. Paul, he shares his perspective on this resurrection as we pick it up. 1 Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Here's that first resurrection. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. There's something spectacular and amazing that will take place in us, to us, at this first resurrection. You ready for it? We go over to 1 Corinthians. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality. You know, I got diabetes, I have four stints, they're going to be gone forever. Any limp, any broken bones, anything that's kept you back, anyone with Down syndrome, any type of handicaps that they were born with, it's going to be erased. Those who have died with, they lost limbs in the war, and they've, they're going to be raised up with perfect limbs, perfect bodies, perfect eyes. It's going to be amazing. Now, now there's one thing about this text, just as a reference. There are some who use this text as proof of the secret rapture that in the twinkling of an eye. It doesn't refer to that. You have to look at the Bible as a narrative and how it all fits together. And, and here we see what's going to happen to all people who are raised up and those who are alive when Jesus comes, what will happen to our bodies. 
And at that moment, did you catch what Paul said? At that moment, the mortal will put on immortal. What We were mortal beings, mean we were going to die, and then Jesus will gift us immortality. We will live forever. And death, it's gone. How do we know? He, we, we go on. Then shall come to pass the saying that it is written in 1 Corinthians, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is wiped out, gone for all those who have accepted Jesus, who have received the gift of eternal life that he offers and he alone. What well, all this takes place. What's going to be the response of of all of us who are either alive when he comes or who are raised up. We get a glimpse of this in Isaiah. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And with all this taking place, the beautiful sounds, the beautiful sights, the bodies being raised up from the graves, bodies change, lives change, will be raised up with Jesus to go to heaven, and this will begin the thousand years. This is next up on your little timeline. The thousand years begin right at this point, what we would call the millennium. To understand what's happening in the millennium, now we need to go to Revelation 20. Revelation 21 to 3, And I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. For 6,000 years, Satan has been ravaging this planet. He's created counterfeits, lies, deceit. He's been doing everything he can to distort God's character. But for this 1,000 years that you have seen on your timeline, there's going to be this period where Satan is going to be bound to this earth, and he's going to be able to think about all the destruction. There won't be anybody else alive but he and his angels. All those who have died away from Christ, separated by disobedience and their own choice, they're still in the graves waiting to be resurrected at the second resurrection. He'll be here to think, no one to tempt. He'll have a thousand years to think about all the consequences of his actions that started in heaven because he said, I want to be like God. He's going to see these results. But while that's happening to him, what's happening to those who are alive that went up with Christ? Well, we pick this up in Revelation 20 as well. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. After I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. He's speaking of the second resurrection of the wicked. This is the first resurrection. Those are the ones who came with Jesus to heaven. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We will reign with Jesus. Jesus came. He gave his life. He lived as the Son of God. Adam was the original Son of God. Jesus came as the second sinless son of God, and he promises you will reign with me. I lived the victorious life, and we are raised, as we are told in Hebrews, to be above the angels and to reign with him. And this is what will happen for the thousand years. But this is where we catch the glimpse. Only here in Revelation 20 do we see this idea of the millennium, and we understand what happens, and we follow this timeline. And the next thing that happens, so if you look down here, you have the millennium, 
and then you'll look down and you will see the second resurrection. And as we already know, the second resurrection are, is that resurrection of the wicked, those who died separated from Christ. Satan is loosed from the pit, from being bound, and they will then rise, all those who died without hope, without believing in Christ. We pick it up here in Revelation 20 once more, and we follow this timeline and see what happens. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. John is writing all this down. He's, he's getting this vision. It's Jesus sharing all this with him, giving him these final events. And he's taken from scene to scene, and he writes, writes everything down. It's not necessarily in chronological order, but he's writing things because he'll even go back and refer to an event that happened previously that he's already written about. But here we have it. We see that there's going to be this final judgment that's coming up. There's been the second resurrection of that of the wicked. Jesus spoke about it in John, and he said, blessed are those who come in the first resurrection here in Revelation. And the ones who come up in the second resurrection are the ones who will be eternally separated by death, by this hellfire. But there's a judgment that takes place prior to this, a final judgment that you see on your little timeline right here. We pick it up here in Revelation 20, and we understand a little bit more about this final judgment, and we're going to talk about what it is. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. I don't think our brains, feeble brains, can imagine this moment. Every single person, hear me on this, every single person from Adam to the last person who was born before Jesus came will be alive whether the first resurrection or the second resurrection, every single person will be alive. And the judgment isn't them. There's already been a determination. And that's very simple. Your name is written in the book of life if you've accepted Christ and you've let your life live out this belief. But here gathered billions and billions and billions of people. I mean, right now, just on this planet, at this moment, we have about 8 billion people. Take that over 6,000 years even though we've grown and we've ramped up to that, billions of people gathered around the throne for this final judgment. But who is this judgment? What is this judgment about? Ah, it's about Jesus. And here you see on your timeline, as we look at it one more time, this final judgment that takes place, it is none other than the judgment of God. You say, well, why does God need to be judged? Very simple. Since Satan has fallen and he started to work with the angels and then he came to Adam and Eve, he has said, God is not just. He's not a God of love. He doesn't care. He's not fair. He's arbitrary. He's vindictive. He's judgmental. And he's done everything he can to destroy God's character. And as the 6,000 years of the great controversy, this conflict has played out, the angels have watched. As Paul said, we're a spectacle of the universe. So we can believe that there are probably other, other planets where people live that have been created. And they look and, and, and they, they've got this seed of doubt put in their mind that Satan has said, I, I wonder if Satan's right. But as they see it played out, they need to be able to honestly say to, for themselves, 
God is the God of justice. His character is true. His life that he has given to us, he has given out of love. He has drawn people to him. And his, th th this question about this justice of God, the theodicy of God, so to speak, everyone can look and they can see for themselves that God is just. And, and how will he do that? I mean, what, what's going to be the method? I believe that Norman Gully sums it up really well. So the final judgment has to do with the resolution of the cosmic controversy issue concerning the justice of God. The question before the assembled humans at the final judgment is not, what is your destiny, but why is your destiny what it is? Is God just in giving you the destiny? Is it an arbitrary choice of his, or is it the choice of each individual? The fact that all humans are present to answer these questions is tribute to the fairness and justice of God. The fact that the final judgment calls into question alleged predestination decrees. God summons all to an open meeting that questions any secret decree to elect some and damn the rest. L love is transparent, has nothing to hide. God has nothing to defend. His love has proven everything. And every human being that's ever lived will be able to ask the question for themselves, did God do everything he could for me? Is God just? Is he fair? Is he kind? Is he loving? Is he everything he said he would be? And as, as we're gathered around the throne, every person who's ever lived, this is what I believe in my heart. I see this happening. The Father will point to Jesus the Son, and the Son will lift his hands up, and we will see the nail pierce in his hands. And that will be everything we need to know about God's justice. The cross explained everything. We don't need to know anything else about God's love other than the fact that he said, I was willing to give of myself, God in the flesh, hanging on the cross. This idea of predestination that so many have, it's going to be wiped out. Everyone had the ability to say yes. Some people say, well, God predestined some to be lost. Guaranteed there wasn't anything that could be done. God says, no, everyone has the right. Everyone has the ability to receive this gift. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes, not just those who were designated, but everyone, and God's justice will be vindicated. Each person will be able to say, everything was done for me. And what will be the response from this when we finally understand this and we see this for ourselves? We go to Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As all are gathered and they see Jesus, love demonstrated on the cross, they will be forced by the realization, you're merciful, you're just, you're loving, you're kind. Norman Gulley writes, the final bowing of all humans is in recognition that Calvary and its intention to save all humans is the ultimate evidence of God's justice. I think right here we can dispel any myth that God is a God of judgment, that he is a, a, a arbitrary God, that he looks to punish. It will be the personal choice. People will be able to look at Jesus and they will say, you gave me every opportunity and I kept saying no, I kept rejecting. And those who are lost will realize it wasn't God punishing as much as it was me separating by my choices and by my sin. I hope that as you're listening to this, you don't see God as a God to be feared, but as a God to be a friend of. 
He's been offering grace and salvation to each person, and I believe he's been offering it to you as well. Just consider. If you have not been considering up to this point, just consider the offer that he is giving of Jesus, who he points to and say, this is love, this is justice. After this, <clears throat> after this final judgment, we pick up here, as we go across our timeline, now we have the final destruction of the wicked, the eternal destruction, or hell, and we get a glimpse of, the, again, the timeline by going to Second Peter. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. As we see Peter write, the judgment first, and then on your little timeline you will see, now it's the destruction of the ungodly, the wicked. You say, well, there you go, it's the destruction. Well, it's destruction by choice, by rejecting God. We catch a glimpse now as we move forward into one of the most controversial doctrines that's, that probably can be taught. It's hell. Jesus speaks of hell to the disciples, so it's nothing that we don't know about, but let's catch up with Jesus' words. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Next, we go to a parable. Jesus told of a farmer who went out to plant seed. In the field, he put his good seed. And it wasn't long after that that the servants came and said, We have a problem. An enemy has come and sowed weeds into your field. Would you like us to come tear them out? Jesus said, no, let them grow together. We'll ruin the good while we're trying to get out the bad. But at the end of the harvest, we will take them out. We will separate them, the, the wheat from the chaff. And we will burn the chaff, and it will be gone forever. The disciples want to know a little bit more about what this particular parable meant, so Jesus explained it to them. Here, we pick it up in Matthew 13. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, in his parable, dispels this idea of an eternal fire that's going on right now while we, while we speak. There are those who think, well, down on the core of the earth is this eternal fire where people who, when they died, they didn't go to heaven, well, you're going to hell. Well, first we know from session 11 that the immortality of the soul is probably one of the most damaging doctrines to Christianity. Immortality is given, as we've already seen just in this session, it's given at the resurrection to those who have been raised up in Christ. It is a gift of eternal life forever by accepting Jesus and his salvation. So there is no immortality of the wicked. That, we're going to talk about that in a minute, where it came from. But here we have Jesus saying there is a fire that will take place at the end of the age, a finality that will completely separate the evil from the good. Let's go back to Revelation 20 and pick it up. When the thousand years are ended, and here at the end of the millennium, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. What did it do? Consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ah, oh, you say, there's that forever and ever. <laughs> we'll, we'll explore this here in a minute. 
about this idea, this forever and ever, this eternal fire that is going on that everybody thinks will never end. But let's go further here in Revelation 20. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Just to put a little bit more finality on it and to give clarification of who's going into this lake of fire, John repeats this in Revelation 21 just to give a little added emphasis and explain once more who's going to be there in that fire and by their own choice. But as for the cowardly, faithless, detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If your name is written in the book of life, you've accepted Christ and you've let him transform your life, then you're safe. You will spend eternity with him. Immortality will be yours to spend forever and ever and ever and ever with God. But for those who have rejected the gift of salvation, rejected Calvary, rejected the ultimate love that Jesus has given unto the cross, showing that my life for yours and your life for mine, his righteousness imputed on us, the choice is already clear. You've rejected salvation, you've rejected God's love, and therefore there will be this hellfire. But it is not an eternal hellfire, meaning that it goes forever and ever and ever as we've seen here, and we did in session 11, immortality is only for those who are righteous, those who have accepted Christ, and they are either caught up in the air or resurrected at Christ's coming and given the gift of immortality, as Paul wrote. So where did this concept of, of this eternal fire come from? Well, we're going to explore this a little bit. But I, I think you need to know something. God does not want people to perish. He never intended, he never desired for anyone to reject him. It was his idea that all would be saved. How, how do I know that? Well, let's reference a couple texts. We, we drop off first in Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways, live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Just to give further clarification, we move on to Second Peter, and he writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, there's so many that have this idea that God is dictatorial. He's, he, he wants to punish. He can't wait to do it. But he says, look, one, I don't want anybody to perish. And number two, as Peter wrote, I'm patiently drawing and wooing. You know, he could have wrapped this earth up a long time ago. But he's loving and kind and patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, so he gives every ounce of grace and mercy that he can to all of us. Well, if he doesn't want anybody to perish, then why is there hellfire? It wasn't even designed for humans. Jesus indicates who it was designed for. Matthew, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This fire, this eternal fire that we speak of, it is an eternal destruction of the wicked. They will never live again. They will be forever separated from God. In fact, we know, we've already seen words, consumed. It will go out. What will happen when this fire goes out? We go back to the Old Testament to Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. I've been accused of being a pyromaniac. I like fire. This particular one, no. But I do enjoy fire, and one thing I've learned about fire is it quits burning when there's nothing else for it to burn. 
so it will be consumed. Well, you said, well, there's that reference to unquenchable fire. Yes, unquenchable means it's thirsty. It just You've seen some fires that, that just seem like they can never go out, but they will eventually when they're done burning something. And in this particular case, that is, that is what will happen. And we also see a reference that the devil will also be consumed. He's not going to live immortal to just burn and burn and burn for billions and billions of years. He and his angels will also be destroyed and be consumed forever. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. As you read through these different scriptures, I think it becomes very clear and apparent. The hellfire is not an eternal thing going on forever and ever and ever. It will have an end. And you have to do, remember two things. One, you read the Bible as a whole, as a narrative, from beginning to end, and you see the most important thing, which is God's love. And then you ask yourself, if God is the God of love, and in the final judgment, they're going to ask the question, is God just? If he's loving, if he's just, if he's kind, merciful, gracious, if he's long-suffering, does it make sense that he would tell humans, I'm going to give you freedom of choice? If you love me, I'm going to give you all these things. But if you say no, I'm going to burn you forever. So one way or another, you're going to live forever. Just one's going to be a lot more painful. Does that sound like a God of love? Yet so many have been have this idea of hell misconstrued. And by doing so, they've rejected God because they said, how could I love a God that would do that to people? Well, guess what? He doesn't and he won't. But where did this idea of this eternal fire come from? Where, where are we understanding this? Well, let me give you a text, a little known book that we rarely ever visit. It's the book of Jude. And we go to verse 9. I'm going to give you a reference point to kind of help you understand this idea of this eternal fire. Because we're, we're tripping up over words and, and the placement of words. But let's just get an idea here. As Jude writes, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You said, wait, there it is, eternal fire. It's speaking of eternal fire. Well, question for you. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? Have you seen any stories about that on the news? No. Sodom and Gomorrah is eternally destroyed. The fire went out, but the destruction was forever. Let's let William Fudge break it down a little bit better for us. The fire that annihilated Sodom and Gomorrah is not still burning. It burned up the cities and everything in them, then it went out. That fire is called eternal fire. It is not eternal because it burns forever, for it does not burn forever. It is called eternal because it destroys forever. That is the Bible's own definition of the phrase eternal fire. Well, you say, where did this idea of this eternal fire come from? Well, it came from Tertullian in the 2nd century, but where it really gained traction was the 4th century. And you'll find something interesting in the 4th century, that this is when Christianity became mainstream. When Constantine went from murdering Christians to accepting them, building churches and inviting them, and, and they merged. Ready for this? We talked about this in session 11. They merged pagan beliefs and Christian beliefs together. And Augustine himself, he started to promulgate this idea using philosophy to explain the, the biblical truths of this idea that yes there is a mortality for those who are wicked not just only those who are righteous and going to be saved for eternity with God there will also be immortality for those who will be wicked and be destroyed 
burning forever and ever and ever in this fire. And it became a prime teaching of the Catholic Church. In fact, you might not know this, the Catholic Church used to collect penance. This was back through the Dark Ages, back through the 7th to about the 15th, 16th century. They would collect penance. They would come to you and say, you know, your loved one, they died, they're, they're, they're in hell. But if you pay, you can pay to get them from hell to purgatory and work their way into heaven by what you will pay to the church. And they built many beautiful buildings, basilicas, Vatican. It can, be, can give you a testament to the money that was raised by doing this. And they use this concept of hell to scare people. Not just to scare people to give money, but also to scare people to do the right thing. But here's the good news. More and more, as people read the Bible as a narrative, and they base it and ask the question, would a God of love do this? They're starting to change what they think about it. And William Fudge writes about this in The Fire That Consumes. The more deeply one digs into the scriptures for understanding regarding final punishment, the clearer it becomes why many godly pastors and teachers are taking out their Bibles and restudying matters that they formerly took for granted. I would just conclude this matter of hell, and I would give you two books to refer to. Hell, The Final Word, and The Fire That Consumes. These are just two great books. The Hell, The Final Word is much easier to read if you want a little bit more scholarly work, and there are other ones that have been written here recently in the last couple decades that will address this. It can take you a lot deeper, if you'd like, than, than what I have shared, but I can stand by this. This is a narrative of God's love. You let the Bible speak for itself, put the timeline together like we are right now, and you'll recognize that hell is a doctrine that does not stand up in light of the biblical truth. It does not reflect God's character. Love and hell cannot, will not, do not coexist. All right, so we move on to the next thing. We go across the timeline, and we're at the final part. And as we wrap this up, this is bookends of the Bible. We have creation and recreation. We go to Revelation 21, and it's beautiful. John is writing. I, I think he was probably writing with eager anticipation, waiting for this moment. We pick it up here in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Real quick. Just as a reference point, you'll notice he said the, the previous had passed away. That's why there was new. Again, this hellfire, it consumed everything, ashes under the soles of the feet of, the, of the, those who are righteous, and God is creating something, making it new all over again. All right, let's continue in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I mentioned this was bookends. You see, God created Adam and Eve to love them and they could love in return. And sin, the rejection of his love, broke it. And for 6,000 years, God has been waiting to bring himself and align himself with people once again to dwell with them. We, we see it when he came down to the tabernacle. He was able to dwell in the tabernacle among the people. Jesus came to dwell with us. God with us. But ultimately, here in this beautiful recreation, you know what's going to happen? God's going to bring the new Jerusalem down from heaven. This earth is going to be recreated, and God will dwell forever. Of all the places in the universe, this is where he's going to dwell. It's going to be amazing. He's going to be with us. All right, let's pick it back up in Revelation 21. We're getting to the end of this 
this particular session and this series. Let's head it off with an amazing finale. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The promise of everything new. The promise of, 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 of living a life with God forever. <laughs> it's beautiful. And now the fulfillment of the book ends. Creation to recreation. We go further. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light with the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, this is what God wanted when he created earth for the very first time. This is ultimately what he wanted, and he's had to wait 6,000 years to bring it to fruition, and he's had to give his own life on the cross, to accomplish it and give grace and salvation and love unending to every person to accept. And this is the gift that he gives. This is the ultimate, ultimate finale of the great controversy and proof of God's amazing love. And as we finish up our last couple Bible texts, we go to, back to Revelation 21. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his names will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Everything that has been lost for six thousand years from the original creation, will be recreated. It's going to be beautiful. And God did this for us. For you. And it will last for eternity. Meaning it will never, never quit for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior and God's amazing love. He will prove to be just. And note one more thing. Remember the tree of life and the Garden of Eden? God had to remove Adam and Eve so they would not have access to that tree and perpetuate sin. And here is here's the tree of life on this planet when it's been recreated. And God will grant immortality to all who have believed, all the righteous. It's going to be amazing. I, 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 I get dumbstruck just even thinking about it. As we wrap it up, I want to reflect on, on a wager that I ask you to take. If you've been here since session one, if you haven't, go back and, and watch it. We, we talked about Pascal in session one and his particular wager. And I ask you to consider, as we went through the series, if you haven't watched session one, I encourage you to do so, but the wager I'm going to go over here with you as we wrap this up and we say our final goodbye for this series. He asks a particular question. What do you have to lose about if God exists or not? What, is it, what will it do for you? Well, let's, let's look at it together as we reflect on the wager one more time in light of this series. 
Let us then examine the point and say either God exists or he does not. But which of the alternatives shall we choose? Reason cannot decide anything. Infinite chaos separates us. At the far end of this infinite distance, a coin is being spun which will come down to heads or tails. How will you bet? Reason cannot determine how you will choose, nor can reason defend your position of choice. You're not a free agent. You are committed to making a choice. Which will you make? Go on. Since you have to choose, let us see what is of least interest to you. For you may lose two things, the true and the good, and there are two things that you are putting at stake, your reason and your will, your knowledge and your happiness. By your nature, you have two things from which to escape, error and unhappiness. Since you must make a choice, your reason is no more affronted by choosing one rather than the other. But what about your happiness? Let us weigh the consequences involved in calling heads that God exists. Let us assess the two situations. If you win, you win everything. But if you lose, you lose nothing. Don't hesitate then, but take a bet that he exists. Does God exist? Now I gave you this wager on session one, and I hope that you've tracked along through all of these. And I hope that I have showed you with logical, through the Bible, that God exists, that his love is true, that maybe he's more than you ever imagined. And here it is, I'm asking you now to consider your wager once more. You see the promises. You see biblical truth may be defined a little bit better. But I hope what you have sensed more than anything is this is a God we serve, that you can serve, of amazing love, who has poured out all of the resources of heaven to save humanity. I don't know where you fall. I don't know if you are still an atheist, agnostic, a deist, if you are considered a nun, no religious affiliation. And I'm hoping that you've moved the needle a little bit as we finish up, that you have thought more about God and that you have sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Because God is, while he's logical, he created logic, he's love. And it's love that is drawing you, that is making you think. And you realize as you contemplate the wager, what would I lose? And we've already seen it. Eternal life with God in peace and harmony and beautiful, beautiful heaven and beautiful new earth. Life created originally has been ruined by sin, but God wants to recreate everything, recreate you, me, all who will accept him. And he wants to give us beautiful things. He wants to give us life forevermore. And more importantly, he wants to dwell with us and be our God for eternity. As I wrap this up, I will finish with Christ's final words as a testament to what will happen and a call and an appeal to you. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that, my friend, is really something more.